and I guess we are go. So hello, hello Gail Pooley. It is lovely to see you. How are you? Where are you? I'm doing great. I'm uh, sitting in my office uh, at BYU Hawaii on the uh, island of Oahu. Uh, I'm very envious and I think that yeah. a lot of our, our viewers are going to be equally envious. Yeah, Aloha Econ. That's my program here. <laughs> very good. So, you know, it's funny, but I was thinking uh, we have been at this for four years, I guess, because this is the fourth installment of the Simon Abundance Index. Yeah, you know, I think it, it started back in, I think, 2018, 2017, when I happened to happened to run across an article that you uh, kind of posted a little tweet. And I says, oh, this is interesting. So I kind of clicked through and you'd written this really interesting article about Julian Simon and population and commodity prices. And and so I reached out to you and said, hey, this is really a good article. Um, uh, have you thought about doing this article with time prices? Because you had done real prices and real prices Correct. were showing that, yeah, they're, they're becoming more abundant. And, and so from that, we started to kind of work and collaborate. And, you know, at the same time, that was the spring of 2018. And uh, the Avengers movie came out, right? The right. Uh, Infinity Wars. So we're watching Infinity Wars and Thanos comes on. And he says something about the universe is finite and they're, uh, you know, the resources are finite. You know, if life is left unchecked, uh, it will cease to exist. It needs correcting. So I think this kind of re-inspired, you know, it re-inspired me to kind of go back and think, well, where did Thanos get this idea? And it was was back to this Paul Ehrlich stuff from the 1960s and 1970s, the population bomb and so forth. And, you know, at that time, you had this obscure economist that kind of stood up and challenged him. You know, Julian Simon said, you know, I, I don't think that's right. I, I think uh, people are actually making things more abundant. And so that's when you and I started to to kind of go deep on what his theories were and and what his thinking was and uh you know and then part of it was they had this they had this bet and that bet was uh, this beautiful bet uh about what uh what abundance was and or, you know what what was what was going to happen in the future to these uh, basic commodity prices those five those five metals that um that uh you know, Julian said, "Hey, Paul, go pick, uh, go pick five of these metals, whatever you want, and uh, let's let's have a bet." Yeah, I think know, I think that's the I think that's the important part of the one of the most important parts uh, of the information is uh, that it was Ehrlich who selected those five metals in 1980, and um, uh, then over the next decade. They continued their intellectual sparring until 1990. They look at the prices and it turns out that inflation adjusted prices, there it is, have fallen. <laughs> and uh, and Ehrlich has to send Julian Simon a check for $576. By the way, uh, his wife signed it, not, not, not Ehrlich himself, Paul Ehrlich, who is still with us, by the way. But yeah, he, had uh, his, his, he had his wife sign uh the check to uh, to to simon um but um i think that what i want to go back to is the is the fact that you have basically approached me to say well real prices are fine but let's look at time prices and let's look at the prices of commodities in terms of time price so let's start there maybe and talk a little bit about 
the Simon Abundance Index because, of course, on Thursday when we release this video, by the way, this is going to be not just the first time that the two of us do a podcast, but it's also the first episode of a new human progress podcast that I'm doing. But um, we'll be releasing this episode on Thursday alongside with the Simon Abundance Index, which we publish annually on 22nd of April, uh, which is the Earth Day, right? And um, um, and so the Simon Abundance Index uh, is measured in time prices. Can you explain to our viewers and listeners what a time price is? So the the assumption, and this was this is not a new thing. It, it really uh, Julian Simon talked about it. Adam Smith actually talked about it. Uh, and it's the idea that we pay, we, we buy things with money, but we really pay for them with our time. And so time is really this measurement that we should be using. Uh, the money price is interesting, but the time price is really what counts. And to get a time price, you just take what's the price of the thing divided by how much you earn an hour. So if the price is $10 and I'm making $20 an hour, the time price is a half an hour. Or 30 minutes. So if you convert things from money prices to time prices, um, you start getting a much more objective measure. And then you just look at how much time things cost you. So if it cost me 30 minutes last year, but due to the changes in my wages or the changes in the price, now it's only 20 minutes. It's that change in time price over time that really should, should be important to us. The other thing that's valuable with time prices, there's two big things that happen. First of all, innovation, when innovation happens, uh, it shows up in, in lower prices, but it also shows up in higher wages. So to more fully capture the effect of innovation, a time price is, is showing you the, 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 the price of the thing, but it's also showing this change in wages. And as long as your wages, your hourly wages are increasing faster than prices, then your time price is going down. And, and you are left with issue, more time. You are left with more time to do other things in life. Right. You, get, you either get the same amount for less time, or if you hold time constant, how much more do you get? You know, if I spend an hour to buy bananas a year ago, and I can get five pounds of bananas, and I spend an hour today to buy bananas and I get 10 pounds of bananas, my abundance, I get twice as many bananas right. per hour. It's like the, right. the rate per hour that we really ought to look at. And the other, the other issue that I've always had is with this idea of moving from nominal price to real price. What is that GDP deflator? Who decides that? And there's a lot of contention and subjectivity that goes into making that adjustment. So you can remove all of these GDP deflators and CPI and, you know, parity adjustments, you move all those off the table and you can ignore all those. And not only can you ignore those, you can go to any country and use their currency and their hourly rate and you can get a time price and you can right. go to any time and do it. So I can go back in history and say, what did things cost in 1850? And what were the wages in 1850? And I can get a time price in 1850. And, and then I have a, a, a number that's much more objective to then start looking at how that price is changing over time. 
Right, so just to re-emphasize, time price is nominal price in that moment in time divided by nominal hourly wage rate, say in 1980, since our Simon index goes back to 1980. And then you do the same thing in 2020. You look at the nominal prices of resource divided by nominal uh, hourly wages and the difference is uh, basically your abundance, right? It's, yeah, it's a measure of abundance. So um, <clears throat> the other thing that we did is, remember there were there five metals originally, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. And those, those don't change over time. It's not like, uh, you know, a computer or, or cars that change over time. These are fundamental basic commodities that aren't really changing. So you don't have this change effect in the, in the thing that we're looking at. So I, I think it was important that we elected to go with these fundamental basic commodities. A barrel of crude oil today is the same barrel of crude oil it was in 1980. So we were holding these commodities constant. And then, and then the, the idea is, look, if we're looking at the time price and the time price is decreasing, what that means is that abundance is increasing. Right. right. It takes me less time. It means I get more for the same amount of time. Right. And, you know, if something falls by 50%, it means for the same hour, I get twice as much. If it right. falls by 75%, it means I get four times as much. And if it falls by 90%, I get 10 times as much for the same right. hour. So this is the, the two things that I just want to clarify for the viewers. And that is that not only is tungsten and zinc and all those metals that they are constant but of course time is a great constant right so um, you know we are really taking all the uncertainty in measurement out of um, out of measuring resource abundance it's just time and whatever the commodity was 20 years ago it's the same as it is today uh, again be it oranges bananas crude oil or zinc uh, and and we have 50 of those and those are the basic 50 that we measure every year so if yeah, what, I what, one of the criticisms one of the criticisms of the original Simon Ehrlich bet is it was too short it was only 10 years and it was only these five things and so we said well let's expand it and include energy uh, food you know, these materials, the, the metals and, uh, you know, uh, uh, and minerals. So we've got, we've got, you know, if you want to start a new civilization, what do you want to take to your island? These 50 items really kind of re represent what you want to take with you. Right. And so we broaden it to, to these 50 items. And then we also lengthen the time of the analysis. So it wasn't just 10 years. Now it's, it's 40 years with. 40 years right. worth of data that we looked at. And the big finding of this year's Simon Abundance Index is that for the same length of work, same hours of work, same amount of effort, if you will, if you could buy just one unit in our basket of 50 commodities in 1980, you can now buy how many units? About four. About four. So in the 40 four. years... So Right. So in the 40 years, your purchasing power as a result of an hour of labor, say, for example, an hour of yeah, work. Think of, think of it as your time purchasing power. Right. You get four the, times as much. 
four times as much. So in four decades, you get four times as much. And, yeah. that, uh, and that, as we explain in the, in the introductory essay to Simon uh, Abundance Index, um, means that abundance is increasing at 5% annually, which means so, that, yeah. So, so what we do is we, we look at these commodities and we calculate how much they're increasing in abundance, how much more abundant they're becoming in terms of their time price. But then we also add this other factor that was very important for Simon and Ehrlich, and that was population to the, to the analysis. And we say, look, if, you, if you're becoming more abundant, everybody's slice is getting bigger, but you're also getting more people on the planet. So the pie is getting bigger. So right. both the slices are getting bigger and the, the whole size of the pie is getting bigger because we've added what? About 75% more people are on the planet today than in 1980. And, so let's stick, and, let's, stick with the, uh, let's stick with this slice analogy. So our research into resource abundance is really divided into two levels. We look at the personal or individual level. We call it the personal resource abundance. And then we look at a population resource abundance. And the best way to differentiate between the two is to say, that personal resource abundance is how much bigger slice of a pizza you are getting. But then population resource abundance is how big is the overall pie, pizza pie that, that the world that the world is producing. So let's right. stick for let's stick for a moment with the with the personal analysis. And um, in this year's index, what we found was that time prices of the 50 commodities fell by 75% over the last 40 years, correct? Right. Now, during the same amount of time, 40 years, we have also increased population by 75.8%. So basically it's 75% decrease in prices and 75% increase in population, which, yeah. means, that, which means that every 1% additional growth in population results in 1% decrease in the time prices of commodities, correct? Yeah, it, and uh, we can say they correspond, you know. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, Ehrlich made this argument that the population was causing a scarcity. And uh, what we found is as population increase, it's actually we have this correlation or this correspondence to this increase in abundance. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's exactly opposite of what, what Ehrlich predicted, and it's what Simon actually predicted was going to happen. Yeah, I, I think it's quite right that you pointed out that it's corresponding or correlating. There are other things, uh, obviously, going yeah. on. But, but in our view, the, the, the message that we are pushing through the Simon project is that people are clearly very important to growing abundance. Can you explain how people, why people are important to the increase in resource abundance? What's the relationship there? How do people contribute? Well, if you think about how we actually grow an economy, it, it really is based on innovation. And innovation is just a new way of doing things. I come up with a new recipe, a new way of doing things that lets me create more for less. That innovation process really um, 
if you dig deep into it, it's a consequence of people creating inventions. And those inventions are the product of ideas. So you really begin the thinking with individual human beings that have the freedom to, to, to act on their ideas and actually manifest their ideas in the form of an invention. And then the next level is to be able to take that invention, that product, uh, that new service to a market someplace where it can then be evaluated or judged to determine if the market believes that you, that that, uh, that person has actually created something of value. An innovation is a market successful invention. So you got all these inventions, but how many of them are actually valuable? Those that have become valuable in terms of how the market says, yeah, they're valuable. We'll, we will pay you more than it costs you to make this thing. You have created value. You know, my mom used to tell me that I was this like this genius inventor all the time when I was a kid, but I could never get anybody to buy my stuff that I invented. You know, I remained an inventor. I was never an innovator. Innovators take these things to the market. And that what we're really doing is we're growing the knowledge. And markets are, are really knowledge growing mechanisms where they produce this information. And so uh, it, it's a, it plays a key role in, in creating knowledge that ultimately is what creates the value of things. It's, it's, it's not the atoms, it's the knowledge that we, we use to arrange those atoms, to, to organize these atoms, to create new arrangements of capital that create their value. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, part of the reason why population numbers, that the absolute population numbers are so important is because we don't know where who the innovators are. We don't know where innovative ideas are going to come from. Uh, we know that the governments are quite bad at trying to uh, stimulate the innovation process. We just know that occasionally there pops up an interesting person who is going to develop you know, penicillin yeah. or a Tesla car or something like that. So that basically says it, it, that that basically yeah, says I, that I think, the more people in the world you have, the more people in the world you have, the, the greater the chance that there will be a genius amongst them who will be able to innovate something interesting. In other words, in a population of one billion people, you are likely to have many fewer innovators than in a population, uh, as successful innovators than in a population of 8 billion people. Would you agree with that? Right. And the other, the other thing that, that I always remember is that I think this, this innovation genius is randomly distributed around the planet. And I always remember Steve Jobs. You know, his father was from Syria. His biological father was from Syria. So the question is, if Steve Jobs had been born in Syria and raised in Syria, would the world have been different? You know, he was, we were fortunate that he was able to, 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 to grow up in a place that was much more entrepreneur friendly, innovation friendly. So he was able to actually experiment with his ideas and act on his ideas. So what I always think about is how many Steve Jobs are in Syria today or these other parts of the planet that don't have this, this uh, environment that allows people to act on their ideas, to have these entrepreneurial uh, activities where they can, they can go out and create. 
so it's it, it, and you get the other advantage when you get a when you get a larger population, your market also gets larger. Yeah. And what that means is if you have a, an idea that has a really large fixed cost to do the first unit, but a low marginal cost, if you have a much larger market, then suddenly those ideas become feasible because now instead of selling it to a hundred people, I could potentially sell this to a thousand or a million people. Therefore, it becomes much more feasible. So you get the two benefits. You get larger population means you get more of these, these geniuses that can yeah. innovate. And then and they also have a much larger market with which to be able to to try to sell their products to. And so of they, course, they actually have this virtuous uh, relationship with each other. Right. But your point about Syria and places like that, that really is just a different way of saying, isn't it, that the importance of freedom. In other words, if people live in places where they are not educated, where they don't have access to information, where they cannot really participate in the marketplace and try to sell their ideas, say in much of Africa, much of Asia, parts of Latin America, then uh, these innovators and inventors are just going to sort of live out their lives without ever contributing to the stock of human knowledge and die precisely because they don't have access to a society as free as ours and access to different forms of capital, including financial capital. I mean, I assume that one reason why my former countryman, uh, Elon Musk, left South Africa for the United States is precisely because it is here that his ideas can take flight, whereas they would be unable to do so in a country like South Africa. Exactly. And I think, you know, our model, our thinking is that you've got to have people, but they also have to, they have to have this degree of freedom. So it's, it's how many people do you have and how much freedom do they have? And those two factors are really the, really kind of the key. And, and Julian Simon made this interesting comment. He said, the ultimate resource is people, especially skilled, spirited, and hopeful young people endowed with liberty. He, he also added that clause, they have to have liberty. And they said, who will exert their wills and imaginations for their own benefits. And so inevitably, they will benefit the rest of us as well. Yeah. So, and so all of these innovations increase human productivity, which then translates into increasing wages around the world. Wages are directly tied to productivity. And when you have and, and we capture those increasing wages in time prices. That's what real prices don't do that. So if you just look at nominal prices, then that tells you nothing. If you look at real prices, well, that tells you something, inflation adjustment and so forth. But if you want a real sense of, uh, of um, abundance, you have to look also at increases in wages, which, which real prices don't give you. Okay, so to summarize, exactly. we have found that uh, time prices of the average time price of 50 commodities in the last 40 years fell by 75%. Um, that means that for the same length of work, you get four units in our basket of commodities in 2020 as opposed to in 1980. Um, that also means that uh, human abundance has increased by 300%, right? That's the difference between the one unit and the and the four units that's the 300 percent and right. according and and that means that abundance 
this slice of the pizza that every individual has access to has grown at 3.55% per year and individual abundance has doubled every 20 years. So that's the big finding of, that's the first big finding of the yeah. Simon Abundance Index 2021. Okay, now let's move at, um, let's move to the global pie level. Here, let me tell you what we are trying to do and then you can tell me whether I got it right. What, what we do here, we multiply that, that personal abundance, that pizza slice, by the additional number of people who are alive to get at that big juicy pie. Did I get it right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that that's, and that really gets down to this issue that the, the dispute that Ehrlich and Simon had is, is that pie going to get bigger or smaller? And Simon, uh, Ehrlich's argument is the pie is a fixed size. It's finite. You know, Thanos, it's finite. You add more people to it means everybody's slice gets smaller. Well, that is true mathematically, but the assumption was, is that, is that resource pie really finite? Well, we know that there, there are a fixed number of atoms on the planet. We don't disagree with that fact. What we, what we say is it's not the number of atoms that count, it's the value of those atoms. And that value is really a function of knowledge that is a consequence of entrepreneurial activity in markets. That's where the knowledge gets created. Um, in other words, in other words, in other words, the, the atoms get rearranged, right? Right. To so produce Cesar something Hildago, more valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cesar Hildago, uh, economist that was at MIT, uh, made this really interesting observation. He goes, you take a, a $2 million super sports car and you drive it down the road and you crash it into something, uh, all the atoms are still there. But the value disappeared right. because because it's the arrangement that counts. And, uh, and that's where we're trying to help people understand that, that don't let the physical counting of things um, obscure or confuse you about how our economy is doing because it's not the physical thing that counts, it's the value of the thing. And the value of the thing is a function of, of a time price. The price is more important than the quantity. And then go beyond the money price to the time price, and then what's happening to the time price over time. It's really that calculus of the time price over time. What is happening to that over time? And then on the global level, it's you're adding more people into this equation. So you have more people creating more resources. Everybody's slice is getting bigger and you're getting more people. So the total size of the pie is actually also increasing. So when you look at it from that perspective, and that's really what our index does, is it says, if each person gets four times as much, and you've got 1.7 times as many people, right? You've added 75% to the population. So instead of one, you have 1.75. And instead of one unit, now you have four units. Like, well, what's four times 1.75? That will tell you how big that pie is now in 2020 versus what it was in 1980.
Correct. So four times four, the, the four units that we introduced in the first half of this podcast, times 1.75, which is, uh, you know, today in the world, we have 175% of the population that we had in 1980, equals 708. That's the, that's essentially the, uh, yeah. uh, the, the Simon index. The Simon index in 2020 has reached a level of uh, 708%, which means that uh, well, it's, the... It's, it, it, it reached a level, remember the index, we, we started at 100. So yeah. we said the index in 1980s, 100, what did it go to when you consider both the, the, the time price of the resources and the additional population? It's, it was at 100, now it's at 708. So it's gone, it's increased by 608% Correct. over that period of time. Correct, correct. So the world is basically six times more abundant in resources than it was in 1980. That's the that's the that's the big finding uh, yeah. of, of the Simon. It's, a, it's actually yeah, it's actually you went from you went from 100 to 708. It's seven times, and but that percentage change is is uh, 608 percent. So yeah, yeah. So we are seven times as abundant as we were in 1980, but we are six times more abundant than we were in 1980. That's, I guess, what yeah, I was trying to say. 600 percent. Yeah, the yeah. percentage increase versus, yeah. So yeah. I think the, the other issues, what, what I always think about, you know, as economists, we're always thinking about the marginal contribution. What happens when, when the next thing, you know, when, when you do the next thing? So when we apply that marginal contribution analysis to this data, what we find is for each 1% increase in population, your pie got 7% larger. Your pie got 7% larger each time population increased by 1%. Now, once again, it was there a, you know, was there a cause and effect? You know, we're, we're sorting that thing through, but it, it looks like it's pretty clear that the empirical evidence says there's a, there's a correspondence here that's very, very strong that as population increases, this pie is getting bigger at a much faster rate than population is increasing seven times. That's faster. right. That's right. And the rate that uh, we have calculated is 5% per annum. The, the, the overall pie is growing at 5% per annum, which means that the pie doubles in size every, what, 14 years, correct? Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you can stay at a 5% growth rate, about every 14, 15 years, you will double the size of your of the thing that you're looking at, the pie. Because yeah, it's this compounded cool. annual it's this compounded annual growth rate that we're we're observing. Yeah. And just to just to reemphasize for our listeners, uh, when we talk about the, the overall pie, what we mean is the fifty most basic commodities as we have calculated them um, over the last 40 years. Now the the at the end of the index we mentioned the word superabundance we call this superabundance why is it superabundance rather than abundance or subabundance why is yeah. it called superabundance <laughs> you know as we dug into this thing we realized there's kind of these four levels of abundance and we 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 thought about the way that abundance was defined how simon and ehrlich actually originally defined it and and ehrlich said you know, there's a fixed pie. So we're never actually going to, 
you know, the slices are, are going to continue to get smaller if we add more people to it. And right. so if you think of that in terms of Ehrlich's definition, it would be you're actually having decreasing abundance. Now, if you can start to begin to add population, but the slices are actually starting to uh, not shrink as much, then you have this emerging abundance area. And then you get to where Simon was arguing, look, uh, the slices aren't getting smaller. The slices are going to stay the same size at least. So you add more people and everybody gets the same slice of the pie. And then the next level was you start to see this accelerating abundance where not only are you adding more people, but everybody's slice is starting to also get bigger. And then this, this category of superabundance is where, where the slices are actually getting bigger than the population growth rate increase. So if you add 10% of the, to the population, everybody's slice gets at least 10% larger. Even That's more. Super, yeah. yeah, even more, at least 10%. You, yeah. you transcend into this superabundant zone where, where it's like, yeah, let's have, you know, every time we add uh, 10% more people, my slice gets 15% bigger. That's superabundance. Slices, right. the size of the slice is getting larger, faster than the size of the population is growing, which is making your, making your whole pie just whew, well, it's a lovely thing. It's a lovely thing and a good antidote to all the negativism and gloom that uh, uh, that so many people, so many people hold and uh, believe in. And uh, I should perhaps mention that uh, you and I have finished a manuscript of a book called The Age of Superabundance. So uh, we are talking to a couple of publishers and we have a book agent. So hopefully we are going to sign up with a uh, um, uh, with a publishing house in the foreseeable future and have the book out before the end of the year. So we'll urge people to, to buy it. But the book goes much further than the Simon Abundance Index, correct? Yeah, we go much deeper. We, go, we actually go back to 1850 and we expand our data set. We look at uh, other, uh, other products. We compare bicycles, for example, uh, between today and hundred years to go. Uh, you know, my, my grandpa used to always tell me, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I'm a grandpa now, so I can do this. He, he'd say, when I was a kid, a Hershey bar only cost five cents. And today they cost 50 cents. That was a few years ago. And, and I'd say, grandpa, but you were only making like 10 cents an hour. So it cost you half an hour to buy that Hershey bar. You know, today it's 50 cents, but I'm making five bucks an hour. So it only cost me six minutes. So it, it's much cheaper today than it was then. And he would scratch his head and go, hey, yeah, you're an economist. I guess maybe you're right. But it's like, that's the time price, right? And yeah. so being able to go back in time and look at these, you know, and we've got, we've got, fortunately, we've got some good data that go back and we can find these prices in Sears Roebuck catalog and we can find them, you know, in old newspapers of the price of things. And then we also have, wages so we get the prices nominal prices get the wages get the time price back then and then fast forward to today so one of the most uh, uh one of the the most uh uh kind of the, the one of the, the the most beautiful thing i found was the price of sugar the time price of sugar 1850 to today 
if you were a blue collar worker, you know, working at a blue collar job in 1850 versus today, the time it took you to buy one pound of sugar in 1850, you can get 227 pounds today. That's extraordinary. It's like life has gotten so much sweeter. I mean, we've all gotten fatter, but it's gotten a lot sweeter <laughs> in terms of in terms of sugar and and all these other things kind of are indicating similar. You know, you start getting to prices that have dropped 90%. And remember, that's you get 10 times as much. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at yeah, so that that was that was your insight going back to 1850. But going back to 1980, between 1980 and 2020, um, you have seven times as much sugar for the same length of work. For right. example, just to, just to give yeah. an example, you have seven times as much pork. Uh, you have almost seven times uh, as much salmon. Who would have thought? You know, seven times as much coffee. Um, so, so there's a there's a lot that has gotten significantly cheaper over the last over the last forty years. Um, yeah, I mean everything. It's like everything. You know, I mean, remember when we first started this, we were thinking, well, there's got to be something that's gotten more expensive. There's got to be something that's gone up, and we kept digging and digging, and and of those fifty commodities, there was not one of them that had actually gone up. In time price, they'd all gotten more abundant. They'd all become more abundant, mm. except for so one we, thing, we were, and we that's surprised too. Except for one thing, and that's human labor. Human labor keeps on increasing in price. Uh, our wages keep on increasing at at above inflation rate, and that, of course, is all uh, reflected in the time prices, which are really the core of uh, right. of our findings so what i think i want to do um toward the conclusion of our podcast we can of course talk a little more but i just want to summarize the findings um so the simon abundance index uh which uh we are coming up with on april 22nd 2021 earth day uh measures abundance of resources 50 resources between 1980 and 2020 and uh, what we found was that the time price, the nominal price of a resource divided by hourly nominal hourly wage has declined by 75%. Over the same period of time, the world added 75% more people, uh, which means that uh, every 1% uh, additional population corresponded to 1% decline in time price. Um, for the same length of work, Instead of buying one unit in our basket of commodities, you can now get four. So that's uh, pretty cool. And then uh, the, the global pie, the, the, the overall global abundance uh, has increased uh, by 608% in the intervening 40 years, which means that abundance of resources has been growing at 5% per annum and abundance doubles every 14 years those are the those are the main findings of uh, simon index 2021 what do you want to add as we come to the end of the of the, of the podcast i lost you there you go so you I, go. I would just say uh Look, uh, we, we tend to think of 
a, a, you know, this innovation happening with high tech stuff, you know, the new, the new uh, Mac comes out, the new iPhone, and it's faster. And it's this kind of high tech level of things where the innovation is occurring. But, but what I think we see here is, you know, innovation is occurring at all these different levels and this basic level of commodities. When we see that, that happening where they've become much more abundant, what it really suggests is, is the people that are in developing places, uh, the poor, they are the primary beneficiary of this uh, increase in abundance in these basic commodities because right. so much more of their income is devoted to food, for example, or, or energy. Um, and, and when those become more abundant, they spend much less time uh, devoted to doing uh, those kind of activities. You take somebody from 1960, for example, uh, wheat and rice have both become eight times more abundant in, since 1960. Well, if I'm living in India in 1960 and I spend eight hours a day working to earn the money to just, uh, you know, sustain my life, today, I only have to work one hour. And, uh, you know, so being able to lift those people out of that, that deep poverty because of this abundance and, and you're giving them all this additional time now to pursue other things, Um that I think is is the big, <clears throat> the big thing in, in my mind is that you're you're lifting these people at this at this basic level, out of this this poverty. And look, uh, internet speeds uh, probably doesn't make a big difference to somebody that's in in the Congo or in a rural area in India. I mean, it's kind of important, but what's more important is what's the price of food and energy today. And is that becoming more abundant? And and I think that's what what we're really seeing is this abundance that's lifting us uh, and lifting the world out of this out of these conditions of of poverty. Uh, it's really astonishing. It is astonishing, and I think we might as well come clean to our viewers and explain very briefly why why this is important just beyond sort of intellectual interest that you and I have in this. And that is that there's a lot of negativity and pessimism around the world where people think that things are becoming worse. But if you can show empirically that things are becoming cheaper, actually, at the level of resources, that resources are more abundant, uh, I hope that it will raise a, a, a one question, one a, a number of questions. But one of them could be like, why, for example, aren't some of these gains seen uh, in some places? Like, for example, if we have all of this abundance going on in terms of natural resources, um, why doesn't it translate also to abundance of, um, I don't know, healthcare or textbooks or education? What is it that makes abundance function at one level but really doesn't lead to greater abundance at another level. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that. What are the, the impediments to seeing these improvements um, happen across the economic spectrum? And obviously, one argument that I would have is that the market mechanism and innovation is not allowed to proceed at a very fast pace in certain sectors of the economy, including healthcare and uh, education. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, you know, here here at BYU Hawaii, we've got a lot of we've got students from seventy different countries. So we get these kids from all over the planet to come here, and they experience kind of Hawaii, you know, and and the abundance that we have here. And um, I've got a number of students from Philippines, and and they're these hardworking, you know, tr trying to trying to figure out how to improve their economy if they go back to Philippines. And I've always always kid them, and I say, you know what the number one export of Philippines is, right? And it's like, well, is it rice or what is? It? I says, no, it's Filipinos, because <laughs> you can take a Filipino from Philippines, you put them any place on the planet, and they get rich. Why can't they get rich in the Philippines? What's the deal? Is it the weather? What is it? And and I think fundamentally, you have these institutions, government institutions, that uh, do not allow people the freedom to innovate, the freedom to be able to grow knowledge and discover new ways of creating value for each other. And those institutional impediments, um, you know, rules, regulations, bureaucracies, or whatever that, that kind of oppress people's ability to, to discover these ways to create value, that I think explains much of the difference in the planet. You look at North and South Korea, just fly over that place at night and say, what's going on between those two places or right next to each other? Well, I mean, your experience with the, uh, you know, the former Czechoslovakia is like, what happened there? Uh, you know, East and West Germany, there's something, it's not physical. There's something, there's something culturally, um, you know, there, there's, there's something different there in it. And it really, I think has to do with, you know, the role of a government institution, does it encourage people to create or not? And I, I think right. we look at China, look at China, what happened in China over the last 30 years, just add a little bit of freedom to all of these people and suddenly they begin to flourish. All and the difference between Chinese, all the difference between Chinese in Hong Kong, who are extraordinarily rich and the Chinese on the mainland until recently who, who were extraordinarily poor. But I think that also shows that culture, whilst important, is not a determinative factor here because obviously, uh, you know, the East and West Germans were very similar culturally, uh, if not the same. But it was, uh, you know, institutions which held them back and made one uh, more prosperous than the other. But I, I guess what I was driving at is that uh, you know, you've got a lot of pessimism in the United States, in large part because there are certain sectors of the economy which do not show the same abundance gains as, um, uh, as, as we are showing in resources. And whenever I publish something about the fall in price of resources, somebody will say, ah, but what about education? And I think it's very important to say that, you know, in large parts of the American educational sector, for example, you have monopolies, you don't really have competition going on, you cannot bring the prices down. Um, same in the healthcare sector, a lot of monopolies, you cannot, for example, in, in places like Virginia, you cannot build a hospital just because you want to with your own capital, you have to, you have to have the permission of the surrounding hospitals to let you uh, build a hospital. Why, why on earth would I want to allow a competitor into into my monopoly? And so, um, you know, so I guess all I'm saying is that I hope that the Simon Abundance Index raises a lot of questions uh, on different subjects, but one of them should be, in my view, why is it that we are getting such huge abundance gains 
um, in the stuff that you and I measure, but not in other areas? What is the impediment to seeing um, things become more affordable and more available in uh, education and healthcare and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it has to do with this. Are people free to learn new things in those industries? Or is there a, uh, a monopoly? Or is there a culture that uh, uh, it does not look upon new ways of doing things a as a positive thing? Uh, you know, if I come up with a new, a new drug, what's it take me to get a drug approved today? Mm. Billion dollars, Bill five billion years, dollars. Yeah. And, you know, so who wants to who wants to risk doing that when, you know, we'll just continue to do the same old thing. And then and then the third party pay issue with with healthcare, mm. when you have litigation, you know, this litigation, this cloud of litigation and regulation that's attempting to to push all of the risk out of out of an industry, you know, can we make life risk free? And if something goes wrong, who can we sue? Well, you're, you're, you're now you've told all of these people that are willing to, to try to risk something, don't take the risk because if you're, uh, you know, if there's a, a problem here, you're going to get sued. You're yeah, gonna get sued. Uh, you're going to get sued, but also the government is pushing a lot of, a uh, lot, lot of, uh, or rather there's a third parties pay for healthcare rather than the patients themselves they don't have any incentive to shop and one of the things that we show in the book and i'm going to leave that as a teaser to our viewers because hopefully it will be one of the reasons why they buy the book is that we show extensively that uh, cosmetic surgeries have fallen in the last uh, what 20 or 30 years quite dramatically whilst the overall healthcare costs uh, have been increasing so when, when you allow competition when you allow people to shop for price, um, you can you can get gains even within the medical sector. Just it, it's just the, the one medical sector which happens to be not to be heavily regulated by the government and heavily subsidized by the government. Yeah. <laughs> so, what shall we what shall we end on? We have. Um, the Simon uh, Index out uh, on uh, Thursday, April 22nd. Hopefully, uh, some of the press will take note of it. Um, we will promote it heavily on uh, Human Progress uh, social media. And um, I, I think I think just people, please become familiar with the facts. The facts tell a story. Uh, if you if you take the time to look at the facts and the key element there is what do things really cost you and what did they cost you yesterday and what did they cost you 40 years ago and is there anything that is more or, or that's less abundant today in terms of the time that it costs you than it was 40 years ago and uh if you think in that perspective, uh, I challenge you to find something that's that's more scarce today. Um, and once again, you've got these temporary shortages. You know, we have bad weather in Florida and the price of orange juice is going to go up. But, you know, that, that tends to kind of supply and demand tend to kind of push that back into a to a price that 
that, that continues to show this underlying trend of abundance. Yeah, and people often internalize those those gains, and they became the new they become the new floor, you know, and then they evaluate additional gains from that new floor rather than how far you've come from the original position, you know, like whenever oil, I mean, you know, gas goes up uh, for motor cars, you know, people write about it all the time. Um, we are running out of oil, it's becoming expensive, the economy is suffering and that sort of thing. But when oil prices go down, as they have throughout last year, um, yeah. nobody writes really articles about it, or very few people point out that we are becoming uh, better off and more abundant because because of those changes. Look, I think that um, if you want to change the world, you know, you have to know the basic facts about it. And if you are confused about the facts and the relationships between uh, uh, the, the, the causes and effects, uh, you can actually change the world for the worse. And so our work is an antidote to some of the most pernicious, anti-human, um, anti-humanistic uh, ideas out there which see human beings as a problem which uh, are borderline genocidal in a sense of people advocating yeah. for uh, for uh, you know elimination of population growth um, or, or, or seeing human beings as uh, as a problem whereas the argument that you and I advocate is that humans are solvers of problems and uh, hopefully that will continue into the future provided that those humans are also endowed with liberty to try new things and then uh, sell them in the marketplace you know what i would what i'd also tell to tell uh, viewers to consider is uh you know your book I, i'm always showing my students uh, your book <laughs> and you know, you got 78, you got 10 big trends, but you got 78 of these trends here in this book. And it's get familiar with the facts. You know, what's really happening with some of these things? And it's a, a very, very quick, easy way to, to become familiar with what's really happening. And uh, so your homework is you got to read this first. <laughs> then when our <laughs> book comes out, you got to read our book. <laughs> Fair point. Fair so, point. Um, yeah. Gail, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it's been great fun uh, working on the book with you last year, and hopefully we'll have it out before 2021 is finished. But more importantly, uh, right now we have this uh, Simon Abundance Index out. I urge uh, people to take note of it. Uh, if they uh, have any questions, please reach out to us. We are happy to uh, do interviews, write op-eds and that sort of thing to promote this notion that the world is actually becoming more abundant rather than less abundant. More Simon, less Thanos. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you very much, All right. Gary. Okay.